This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your guest host, Pete Stajakovic. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Pete, you are trying hard. Soon to be mainstay host. <laughs> it's like you didn't hear what I'm saying. Okay, well, <laughs> good to have you back on the show, Pete. <laughs> Can you see the stars in my eyes? <laughs> but yeah, it's great to have you back. We had a lot of positive feedback after last week's intro and outro. That was a, that was a stellar performance. So we'll see, we'll see Adam still taking care of his week-old child here. Uh, this might be your last gig Take uh, with time, the Vancouver Adam. Real Estate Podcast, Take but who time. knows? You might be here for a while. Hey, man, only way to go is up. Could just keep on climbing. And just want to give a shout-out to a certain Jim S. with all the positive feedback. Thanks very much. <laughs> okay, so let's let's get to the show. Who do we got this week, Pete? You weren't here. Adam and I spoke with Teo Nikolai. So who is Teo Nikolai? Matt, who's Teo Nikolai? Yeah, Teo Nikolai is, well, he's a big deal. Let's put it this way. He teaches at Harvard. You heard of Harvard? Heard of it. (laughs) Heard of it. Okay. (laughs) Teaches at Harvard, teaches real estate. He's a student of market cycles. So we've had him, we had him on when the market was super hot. It was one of our really, it was a fantastic episode. Market, of course, is, uh, has softened. We're we're in different market conditions now. And Teo's back to talk about the future of Vancouver real estate. 
if it's a good time to buy. I mean, this guy is, he's a wealth of information. This is a fantastic episode. So stay tuned for that. He's also an entrepreneur and investor himself. He's a founder of Nikolai LLC and all around just really, really bright guy. So you want to stay tuned for Teo Nikolai. But before we get to that, Pete, yeah, we're recording downtown and uh, yep. Larry Beasley just left the studio yeah, I met him. Great guy. We actually had a couple uh, realtors here come and take some pictures with him. Believe yeah, me. a lot of people were excited to see Larry Beasley in the flesh here. He signed a bunch of books, which brings me to our next point. We still are giving away copies of Vancouverism, yep, and they're signed right. by Larry Beasley himself. And we have a new winner this week, and we're going to get to that after the interview. Stay tuned for that, But guys. let's talk just briefly about how you can get entered into a draw to win one of these coveted books. And they are coveted. Matt, how do I win one of these books? Okay, Pete, what you do is you go to Google, you type in Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, okay? When the search comes up on the right-hand side, you're going to see our business page. Yeah. You click review, you hit review, you type in a review, and you get entered in to win Vancouverism by Larry Beasley, signed by Larry Beasley. You do not want to miss out. We are giving away a book a week for the foreseeable future. Definitely, you want to do that today. Just to clarify, we want you to write a review. Don't uh, follow Matt's instructions verbatim and write review in the, in the actual review you, section. You, at least you're listening now, Pete. Okay. Thank you so much for everyone who's left reviews. But Pete, this is a super fascinating conversation and it's a long one, but it's just chock full of useful information for people interested in real estate markets, Vancouver, where we're at in the real estate market what's caused this downturn and uh so stay tuned teo nikolai he does not disappoint enjoy okay so we're here with teo nikolai past guest fan favorite and uh harvard extension school instructor also president of nikolai llc how are you doing teo i'm doing very well thank you for having me yeah, thanks for taking the time again. Um, it's great to have you back on the show, Teo. Can you can you maybe start um, for people who didn't hear you? That was quite a while back now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm an instructor at Harvard Extension School, and I specialize in real estate investment. And real estate is one of those topics that affects everyone in the world. And uh, it's also because it's one of the most entrepreneurial ventures out there. Uh, a lot of people are interested in it, and real estate affects every part of us. Uh, and everyone, uh, wh whether you're in real estate investment or just living in a city, it's important to understand how the market forces of real estate affect you and your life. And that's what I teach at Harvard Extension School. So, Teo, you're actually you're an investor yourself, and uh, you're president at an investment uh, uh, investment firm. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you got into real estate? Sure. I like to tell people that I do what I teach and I teach what I do because real estate is an industry where everyone who's a part of it should be continually investing in their own education in terms of researching and, and developing their understanding of the market. And so I got into real estate by working for a large uh, multifamily investment company in northern Illinois uh, near Chicago. Uh, but then I moved out to Denver after the Great Recession and started my own real estate company out here. And that's given me an opportunity to 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 put to the test a lot of what is taught in academia 
and then, of course, to bring back into academia what I've learned from doing it on my own. And so uh, real estate investment is something I've been doing for a very long time. I've enjoyed doing it and I certainly enjoyed the exploration of it. Uh, a lot of people will get started in real estate just the same way I did, which is just one individual property. Um, and uh, and that kind of snowballs as, as things go. And so uh, that's how I got my start and it's been a wild ride. Fantastic. So we we had you on before, Teo, uh, talking about you have a, a really interesting chart and explanation of of kind of a market cycle. And the last time we had you on, I think Vancouver was going gangbusters, as I as I remember. Um, but we're in a, a very different uh, moment right now. Can you maybe recap for our listeners who missed that episode the the four stages of a market cycle and and what those entail? Certainly. Real estate moves through a very curious cycle. And what's what's interesting about it is that we, we don't always know the timing of a cycle, when it's going to happen. But what we do know is that the, the real estate moves through an inexorable cycle. And that cycle is, is best expressed in a four-phase breakdown. And one of the, one of the, the best people that, that explains this is a gentleman named Glenn Mueller. And uh, he's a, a professor at the University of Denver. Um, but he has has refined a a model of, uh, of real estate investment cycles and and basically broke it down to four stages. Um, this model, by the way, goes back to the 1870s uh, in terms of of our understanding of it. And what's amazing is, though it was it was identified, uh, you know, really about 150 years ago, the truth of it is still uh, present, and we see it in almost every market throughout the world. And it's something that we can measure. And, and understand where we are in the cycle, which also tells us what is likely to happen next. So the, the first phase of the real estate cycle is what's known as the recovery phase. And it's during that phase that we've just gone through a recession. So we've got high unemployment, high vacancy, uh, low prices, low, lower rents and, and lower home prices. Uh, we're, we're at the kind of the bottom of, of economic activity. And what's interesting is economic activity, uh, demand for space and demand for stuff tends to grow organically. Uh, even if we're in a recession, people are still having babies, people are still turning 18, uh, and companies begin to, to grow. So that, that built-in demand uh, starts to br- slowly but surely bring uh, us out of, our, of the recession uh, through the recovery phase. That recovery phase is also typically helped by government intervention, such as low interest rates and and uh, and other stimulus. And what we what we measure this by, if you were to kind of measure or, or look for how you'd want to to measure the the different phases, we look at occupancy rate. Um, occupancy can be either in terms of rented units and uh, and what the the occupant uh, occupancy of, of rental units are, or we can also just look at the total number of inventory that's available for sale. So in the recovery phase, we have very, very, uh, we've got low, uh, low occupancy or lower than average occupancy. And as that economic activity takes place, more and more rental units become rented, more and more of those homes that are sitting vacant become uh, sold, and the, the occupancy rate tends to increase. We move from the first phase, which is recovery, into the second phase, which is expansion, when the, 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 the kind of the delineating line is when current occupancy exceeds long-run average occupancy. We know we've kind of got out of the re- recovery or the recession at that point because the uh, because now uh, more uh, ocup- more units are occupied than were you know the, the, over the long term are occupied and, and the significance of that is 
that now we begin to see upward pressure on rents. We tend to see upward pressure on both rents and prices when occupancy is high, which is another way of saying that inventory is low, and that takes place during the expansion phase. So we've got, we're now running out of space because of that scarcity. Rents are now moving up. Home sale prices are now moving up, but we're not seeing a lot of new demand. The expansion phase, and during that phase, we'll continue to see occupancy go up. We'll continue to see upward pressure on rents. And the only thing that typically will, will turn that, that around is the addition of new supply. The, once we get towards the end of that second expansion phase, so phase two, which is expansion, we start to get to the end of that when developers responding to this very high occupancy and higher rents decide to start building more units. And so that, that new supply starts to come online. And that is when uh, typically once that new supply comes online, we start to see that, that thirst being quenched within the market. And where we transition from phase two recover or expansion into phase three hypersupply is uh, we, that, that is delineated. We know we've crossed from phase two to phase three when we see occupancy starting to uh, decrease. Uh, what's causing that decrease? Well, typically what's happening is uh, we are, we're seeing those new units come online, which means there are more homes and, and more storefronts available than are needed at the moment. And so we, you know, or that are being absorbed is the technical term. And so then we, we start to see occupancy decrease. Now, it's important to know that throughout phase two and phase three, current occupancy is still above long-run average occupancy. And whenever that's the case, whenever there's that, that scarcity in the market for available space, we still see upward pressure on rents. And in this phase three, hypersupply, uh, the, the name of it should sound a little bit scary to anyone who's interested in real estate, but uh, phase three, hypersupply, uh, what's happening is uh, we still have a, above average occupancy. Therefore, we have above average rents. We see rents growth and uh, rent growth, and we see home prices going up. And so builders are saying to themselves, boy, this is great. We should keep building. The problem in real estate is it takes a really long time for new product to come online. Uh, it can take three or four or five years between when a project is started and when all those units are delivered. And that long gestation period is largely responsible for the boom-bust nature of the real estate cycle. Because as I've mentioned, we're, you know, if we're in phase three hypersupply, we, we don't, we're, we're now already building more units than are needed. But the problem is there's a huge pipeline of units that are, that are being built right now that will be coming online, not today, but in another year or two years or three years. And that frequently is long beyond when those units are needed. So in phase three, hypersupply, we see, uh, we see rents going up, interestingly enough, but occupancy going down. The rents are going up because current occupancy is above the long-run average, but occupancy is trending downwards to eventually get out of this, this phase. Um, and it's being pushed, again, typically by the introduction of a lot of units. This would be a really, really good time for developers to, put, to pump the brakes, for developers to say, we're not going to add more units. We see a recession coming. Not only is occupancy decreasing, but we have a, a boatload of new units that are in the pipeline that we know are going to be delivered over the next couple of years. Let's go ahead and stop building. 
And in all of my research and, and all of my interviews with with uh, with developers, I have not found a single one that will actually pause and say, "Yes, let's put a, let's put the brakes on this." Um, <laughs> right. And so developers can they continue to build, and uh, the kind of the car runs off the cliff, um, and that leads us into the fourth phase of the real estate cycle, which is a recession. Uh, we the the delineation between uh, phase three hypersupply and phase four recession is when the current occupancy falls below the long-run average. So suddenly now, not only do we have enough units coming online, we have so many units coming online that we're, we're developing an abundance of vacant units. Um, unfortunately, again, would be a great time to stop adding those units. But remember, the, 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 the units that are being uh, delivered today were started three or four or five years ago. And so there is a, that early phase of the recession. The reason we see this bust and a prolonged um, bad experience for real estate investors in, in the in the area is because a long after there is no longer a need for additional supply, new supply continues to arrive at the market. Those properties that were being built back in phase two and phase three are being delivered into in phase four. Um, so that pushes prices down. It pushes occupancy down. Uh, developers go bankrupt. They stop building, and and that then leads eventually. To the bottom of the real estate market, where we have very, very low occupancy, uh, we're we're in the middle of a recession, and it's it's only when that occupancy, the, those those additional units stop coming online, that we begin the process of recovery, and that initiates phase one, and we start the process all over again. Uh, this is something that we have measured for over 200 years. We have data that shows this cycle continues to to go. And it typically is around an 18-year cycle, but of course, it kind of depends on what's going on in the market. So that's the real estate cycle. That's that's 18 year or 200 years worth of data in uh, in about uh, 10 minutes. But uh, hopefully, that, <laughs> that helps uh, kind of lay the scene of of these cycles that markets move through. Right. No. So that that was a a, a, a good 10 minutes, and I think our our listeners are are going to really benefit from that. One thing that strikes me in just trying to parse out exactly where Vancouver is. Um, in in the cycle here, uh, a lot of people are talking about a lot of supply still coming. Uh, you know that's being built right now. It was pre-sold, so it's been purchased. It's coming on in 2020, 2021. Um, but there's no there's no recession here. Um, the vacancy rate is still very low. Uh, rents are mm-hmm. still seem to be softening a little bit. But are are still are still very high, and there's been a bunch of uh, policy measures, right? There's been uh, what here a mortgage stress test at the federal level that makes it harder to borrow. There's been uh, some provincial regulation, some city regulation. Of course, there's the foreign ho- uh, home buyers tax, as you know. H- how would you make sense of this market? Well, this market has been very very interesting, and for again, as you mentioned, for the last time we chatted. Um, you know, it's it's important to kind of think about how radically uh, this this market has changed. And the, uh, the the way that I suggest is it's it's you know we're the, the most recent data we have is from June. And and what's interesting is if you compare where the market is from June of this year to June of last year to June of 2016, uh, it, it it tells the story of a turning real estate market. And and it also illustrates how the the how these markets function. So. Uh, so going back to June, this seems like a long time ago. Uh, going back to to uh, to June 2016, uh, that was about the high of of price appreciation in in Vancouver. 
Um, and it was in terms of that when I say price appreciation, I mean the the rapid increase in in prices. And if you go back to June 2016, uh, there were a total. This is the the uh, this is data from uh, the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Uh, they reported there was a total of about 7,800 active listings in June of 2016. If you fast forward to today, there are about 15,000 active listings. So there's double the number of, roughly double the number of, of available homes to be purchased. And that, you know, when I, when I was talking about the real estate cycle, uh, one of the most important things we look at is occupancy. And the, 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 the for sale version of occupancy is inventory or, or total active listings. So we went from in a, in June 2016 there was 7,800 active listings, and and uh, what's interesting is the number of sales in that month were about 4,400. So you only had you had less than 8,000 residential properties available for sale, and and in June alone of 2016, 4,400 were sold. Uh, over half of all available active list actively listed properties sold in that month. Uh, and that is an astounding figure. So uh, one out of every two active listings sold in June of 2016. Um, and and that's, uh, that's an amazing, uh, that's amazing statistic. Uh, another amazing statistic to think about is, is that um, with Vancouver's, the, the greater metropolitan area, um, the, those 7,800 total homes, that's, that's one home for every 315 people. And so, I mean, for sale. And so, you know, we, we experienced in 2016 this excruciating shortage of housing that's available. Um, and consequently, and, and not, not, I mean, this is a direct result, uh, that year, uh, the, the, over the previous 12 months in June 2016, we saw a 32% increase in average home prices. And so, um, so that, you know, that, that June 2016 marked a very key moment in the Vancouver real estate market where we had an excruciating shortage and that, of course, led to a, a significant price appreciation. If we move forward to June of 2018, we see something a little bit different. Uh, uh, last year, this time, we had uh, not uh, about 8,000 units, but about 12,000 active listings. Uh, so, so we had more active listings. Uh, the sales were much lower. There were only in that in that month of last year, we had about 2,400 uh, units that were sold. And so what that means is only one out of five active listings were sold in June of 2018. Remember, in, in 2016, it was one out of every two. And so what we're starting to see is an accumulation of active listings. We're starting to see, of course, that that means more choice for buyers. And, and not surprisingly, that means less upward pressure on prices. Still a little bit. Uh, the, uh, there's a statistic that we look at, which is the sales to active listing ratio. Um, and again, that's just the, it's the number of, it's, you can think of a percentage, it's the percentage of, of the total inventory that's sold in any given month. Uh, in June of 2016, it was 56%. In June of 2018, it was 20%. So uh, fewer homes were being sold uh, and not surprisingly, less upward pressure on, on, on rents. In June of uh, 2016, rent, uh, uh, home prices were going up by 32%. By June of 2018, they're going up by just nine percent or nine and a half percent. That's that's still a very very healthy. Uh, it's a, actually it's a it's a it's an unsustainable level, uh, but it's a you know it certainly shows a very different market. Fast forward a year from 2018 to 2019, we're now in a in a completely different market. Uh, active listings went up from 12,000 properties to about 15,000 properties. 
So again, we're seeing an accumulation of supply. And what that means is, is that, that buyers have more choice. Uh, there were only 2,000 sales, but roughly 2,100 sales last month. And that's out of an inventory of 15,000 units. So only one out of every seven homes that were listed last month actually sold. And uh, so again, consequently, with this abundance, we're starting to see that that abundance. Uh, we're seeing a lot more listings than are typical. And uh, the annual uh, price change was not plus 9.5%, but rather minus 9.5%. So consistent with what we expect in the real estate cycle, we saw that that abundance, which has now led to this downward pressure on prices. Uh, so for, before we get into the government policy, I, I think it's, it's important to, to know kind of how just radically different the, those three years were 2016, 2018, 2019. Uh, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that did make sense. <laughs> yeah. Matt has just leapt out of the building window. <laughs> I was going to um, say, the tears <laughs> streaming he, down he my said, face. He said, I don't want to be involved in real estate anymore. I'm <laughs> yeah. out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, well. Speaking of which, uh, Matt is not alone. Uh, there, there are a lot of people abandoning the the, the Vancouver market, and that is uh, what is largely, and in, in my the way that I look at it, is uh, is what's happening here. And uh, you mentioned government policies, and and the uh, you know I think when when people ask about uh, the Vancouver market, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. One of the most one of the most frequent uh, uh, observations that I hear is, you know, wait a minute. So Vancouver has experienced this incredible surge of prices, 30% price appreciation per year in 2016. But Vancouver's overall economy was not expanding at 32% a year. It was moving along. It was healthy, but it wasn't, you know, it certainly wasn't, uh, it wasn't so, so robust as to justify that price increase. And similarly, people today in the last couple of months are saying, well, Vancouver's unemployment hasn't changed. The job situation hasn't really changed. And yet now we're seeing a, a you know, a 10% year on year decrease in, in home prices. Um, so, you know, how does that explain, you know, what's, what's happening here? And, and there, there's a lot of different theories that are going out there, but the, the one that I subscribe to the, the most is, um, is the for the impact of foreign ownership on Vancouver's market. Uh, there is a there's a great paper out there by a by a gentleman by the name of Josh Gordon, um, who who put together a, a great uh, and, and I think an insightful uh, paper on on exploring uh, whether we you know whether you could tie foreign ownership to uh, to the housing market, um, and I think he's done a very good job of of, uh, of explaining that. Um, basically, what uh, what uh, what uh, Mr. Gordon has noted is that uh, you can you can almost tie neighborhood by neighborhood the price appreciation uh, to the impact of foreign ownership. Um, so, you know, one of the things we know is, is that foreign ownership tends to be at the very high end. Uh, so people are coming from, from other markets, buying up these, uh, these uh, you know, expansion, expensive mansions and condos and, and, uh, and apartments. Um, and so a lot of people say, well, that, that doesn't affect me. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't buy, I'm not buying a $4 million home. I'm just trying to buy a, a you know $500,000 or a $700,000 home. Uh, why does what the, these foreign purchases? Why how does that affect me? Well, it, it turns out that that what uh, what Josh Gordon found is that it has a very direct effect on in what he calls knock-on effects or knock-off effects and windfall boosts. Um, so what what has happened is someone who owned a home that used to be a million dollars in in you know West Vancouver and has held that home for 10 years or so, 
uh, now has foreign buyers, or at least uh, within the last couple of years, has been able to sell that home to foreign buyers um, for you know three or four million dollars. That Vancouverite now has a lot of extra money, and they can then, as they move to a different part of Vancouver, they can then spend that money, and they can they can spend it on on buying a home that used to be a million dollars. They can easily afford to pay two million because they just sold their home recently for four million. And so, what happens at the upper end of the market has a significant impact on what happens in all parts of the market. And that that knockoff effect, or those those windfall boosts, as Josh Gordon calls them, uh, I think are 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 at play here. Um, and we see that a lot. And and so um, so that that has, if you if you kind of look at the, the chart of, of foreign ownership, um, and the, and and specifically the percentage of units that are being acquired by foreign owners. Um, you start to see that that's that 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 theory starts to play out. Um, so so that is something that has certainly impacted the market, um, and that has led to, as as everyone knows in Vancouver, um, that has led to some very interesting government policies that are designed to combat that. Uh, there's the speculation and vacancy tax, and of course that's just the direct uh, uh, foreign buyer tax. Um, those have been, from most economists will agree, in- incredibly effective at uh, at reducing the incentive for foreign buyers to come in and purchase real estate, which they're not really using, uh, but are just looking to uh, to, to shelter, um, you know, shelter their, uh, you know, their assets or to move their assets into a, into a relatively safe market, um, and and as a result of that, uh, we've seen a significant uh, decrease in the demand for those higher end units. Suddenly now, uh, the the the, the mid range and lower end units, which had been benefiting from those windfall boosts. Are no longer getting those windfall boosts, and that's why we're seeing this uh, this this significant increase in inventory and now a decrease in in overall pricing. Right. Well, we often talk about the bank of mom and dad uh, here in the Vancouver market, and I think <laughs> you're right, uh, especially if if mom and dad live in or lived in West Van or or the West Side or or really anywhere where their their equity in their home was skyrocketing. Um, you know that enabled the a 25 year old kid to get a down payment for a, a two bedroom that type of thing. And I think yeah, the it yep. kind of trickles through the entire market. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, so. Where where do you think from from your perspective where are we then in in the in the market cycle here? Well, it's you know it's very interesting. What's the uh, what what where Vancouver is unique in the the real estate market cycle? And by the way, you should always be be uh, you should always be cautious whenever you hear anyone say uh, you know this time it's different. They say that is the those are the, the scariest words you hear from any any speculator's mouth. Uh, you know this time it's different. But uh, but so that so with that being said, I'm going to say. In Vancouver, there's something very curious, which is, as I mentioned, this isn't a supply issue uh, at the moment. Uh, we're not seeing uh, Vancouver's that the whiplash that people are experiencing is 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 driven by a very unique quirk of demand, um, and so that's something that is uh, that is uh, that's remarkable. The, the the question is, there's there's a uh, kind of in a bit of a free fall at the moment in terms of, of pricing. The question is, of course, uh, where does that end um, and uh, and really, the the thing that I want to watch for, and and the statistics on this are are hard to come by in real time, but you'd want to watch for the percentage of buyers that are that are uh, that are non-foreign, and uh, that's basically the, the the question is when uh, when will this market eventually stabilize, 
it it ought to stabilize in theory when the uh, when we see that that the the the, the influence of foreign buyers as a percentage of of current sales is very low, uh, minimal if any, and uh, so that's something to to watch for. Um, as for uh, you know the the, the classic uh, uh, economic uh, prescription, what goes up must come down. Uh, that is kind of what we're experiencing here. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of academic research in the next couple of years as to uh, how much of the run-up was due to foreign buyers, and therefore how how far do we have to go before that that uh, that is that is extinguished. So, it, it, just thinking about um, if if all these policies uh, remain in effect, so we have the. 20% foreign buyer tax, the uh, speculation and vacancy tax, the empty homes tax that that has basically at least from our vantage point and we're we're sitting here in in downtown Vancouver um, led to most people, most foreign buyers basically to to disappear. Um, what does the next market cycle look like in your mind? Like Vancouver oh, since about the mid '80s, and and I guess before, but specifically from about '85 through to uh, 2017, let's say, has had kind of really crazy run-ups in prices, real uh, extensive and and kind of massive booms. Um, if if these policies remain in place, uh, it, do you think that those days are, are over for the next cycle? And I'm thinking specifically this time is different, right? Because we're hearing a lot of people yeah. say that about Vancouver, not speculators, sure. but saying, okay, you know, the the days are those days are gone. Sure. Well, something interesting is happening. So the you know the uh, when real estate markets collapse, uh, they collapse for two reasons. Uh, one is, and the vast majority of them collapse due to oversupply. So addition, as I mentioned, that we have additional the supply comes online. Uh, Vancouver's is is right now is experiencing a, a demand reduction, which is which is pretty uh, staggering, and that's why uh, people from around the world are watching Vancouver right now because this is a highly unusual situation. Um, so 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 a couple of things in terms of, of you know what are we what are we looking out for? Uh, one of the things to always watch for there's 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 two that I'll just throw out there, two statistics that I would look at and track to try to continue to gauge. The, the the health and the direction of the Vancouver market. Um, the, the first, as I mentioned, is is occupancy. And occupancy can be measured in two different ways. In the in the rental market, we, we literally mean the percentage of rental units that are currently occupied. And in the in the for sale market, we're talking about active listings, the total amount of homes that are sitting out there waiting to be sold but are not yet sold. And so what we do is, you know, I, I would compare those to the long run average and the kind of the general rule of thumb is whenever current occupancy is greater than long run average, we tend to see upward pressure on rents. Whenever current occupancy is below long run average, we tend to see downward pressure again on rents and prices. Um, and so, again, that's what we, we see right now. Uh, there's an abundance of, of housing, 15,000 units that are out there. Um, and, uh, and, and we're seeing downward pressure on, uh, on home prices. So, so the first thing I would look at is, is occupancy. There's another statistic that I think is a, it's an important indicator, and it's one that I would pay careful attention to in Vancouver. And what that is, is that house price to income ratio. And, and cause, because at the end of the day, real estate is driven, the price of real estate is driven by people's willingness and therefore their ability to make those payments. 
Um, right now, it's uh, the 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 the, uh, the there's the in, in the Royal Bank of Canada has uh, has has characterized Vancouver's uh, affordability scene as dreadful. Uh, that is their that is their their words for Vancouver scene, right. uh, and and they feel that way because according to Royal Bank of Canada, it, it takes 82 percent of household income to afford an average home, and and you know the, so and again the question is how on earth are people affording this? And and the the answer again to to my belief, and I think a lot of people are, are coming to agree on this, uh, was the the influence of of foreign buyers, or so there's a, there's what's called a decoupling. Um, to, uh, between uh, that statistic, the home uh, house price to ratio or house price to income ratio, um, and what we actually you know see, so a decoupling between income and home prices. Um, so let me give you some statistics on this. And again, uh, I'll refer to the excellent work of, of Josh Gordon on this. Um, you know, he noted that the you know in, in Calgary we saw we, we currently see a house price to income ratio of about four. That is to say. Home prices are about four times the median household income. Uh, Montreal also about four. Ottawa is about three point five. Uh, Vancouver is about twelve, uh, eleven to twelve. That is to say, home prices are about eleven to twelve times the uh, average family or median family income. So, well, I would look at that very carefully because that is in most mar- most market analysts would agree an unsustainable level. Uh, we typically like to see that fall to, you know, at least, you know, six to one, uh, you know, home prices being six times the uh, the average. That would still be a tight market, but within the realm of affordability. And so that's one thing I would look at is over the long term, uh, you know, do we see that, um, you know, uh, prices adjusting? And I think that's something that, that, uh, that investors should be thinking about in terms of what would happen if, uh, if Vancouver became more aligned with uh, a typical market, which is somewhere between, you know, again, three to, to six, um, well, home prices are three to six times the median household income. Teo, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here. And I mean, we often think of ourselves within the Canadian context or cities like Calgary, but we also think of ourselves as operating within the context of the Pacific Rim or within global real estate. And even with, you know, something like a 20% foreign buyers tax, in thinking about the collapse or the potential collapse of the market in Vancouver, um, what about like, you know, when you think about us in the operating in the Pacific Rim with markets like San Francisco and Hong Kong and really expensive markets, how, how much free fall until people think, you know what, it, it doesn't make sense for this market to reach these new levels of affordability before we see a bit of a pile on from investors or, or people that want to live within the Pacific Rim. Sure. Well, there's something very interesting that's going on right now. And the, uh, and the, 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 the real estate board of greater Vancouver has a great uh, phrase for this. And there is absolutely right. Uh, something very interesting that's going on is it's called an expectation gap. And this happens in markets when we move from a, a, a time of high appreciation to a time of price decreases, um, you get what's called an expectation gap. And what that means is you've got a lot of buyers and a lot of sellers that are just hanging out on the sidelines. Uh, the buyers are holding off because they think prices will um, will will uh, continue to fall. Uh, the sellers are holding off because they think that prices will rebound. And so suddenly you start to see uh, the, the kind of a, 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 a paralysis in the market um, as people who should be participating have, have opted not to. Um, that usually doesn't last for too long because eventually the uh, the market continues to speak 
Uh, right now, it doesn't look so good for sellers. It looks like the uh, we're, we can you know, continue to see downward pressure um, because so much of the of the upward pressure was from foreign buyers, and with the the effect of these of these policies, um, that pressure is no longer there. Um, so, uh, in terms of of you know when that happens, um, you know it it just it kind of, it really depends. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's it's important to keep in mind that despite the affordability issue. Uh, Vancouver still has a lot of people living there and, and moving there, um, and that's something that uh, that we that we look at. And, and increasingly, millennials are being pushed out to suburbs, uh, but people are still finding Vancouver an attractive place. Um, there's a there's a really really uh, in, in in the U.S. There's a funny expression uh, that was that was described to uh, the famous baseball player uh, Yogi Berra, and uh, he th- this this applies to Vancouver. The, the expression you hear is uh, you know n- no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> and you know, and that's uh, that's kind of what you know. That's how you could say Vancouver. You know, if it, people say, "Well, no one's moving to Vancouver; it's too crowded." Well, uh, there are a lot of people in Vancouver right now, and uh, and and those people tend to uh, to appreciate it's two point four, two point five million people uh, that 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 find a, a good place to live. So, um, you know, the the I don't see a mass exodus from Vancouver. I continue to see people wanting to to move there and live there. Um, affordability. And the government's, uh, re, you know, government policies related to alleviating affordability is is a challenge for Vancouver as much as it is a challenge in in San Francisco and Seattle and New York. Uh, we we see that as that's a that's a global phenomenon right now, and it's one that, that most cities will be struggling with. But I don't I don't see uh, people exiting uh, Vancouver in, in droves uh, because of that yet. So, Teo, one one thing that strikes me is. When we're looking at occupancy rates here, um, the vacancy rate on the rental side is still very low, and and it really shows very little signs of of abating. Like people still are really desperate to find uh, places to live here, and it's still very tight. Mm-hmm. And yet the listings are going up. Is that and and quite drastically right um, on the mm-hmm. on the actual purchasing side? Is that um, is that normal? Do you do you see that? Because a lot of that strikes yeah. me as as policy induced. Because all the a lot of the policies here have been have been uh, you know targeted at stifling demand from purchasers. So is this is mm-hmm. is this somewhat unique, or is this something you see kind of all the time? It it's something that we we do see because there there is a lag between what happens in one segment of the housing market and what happens in another segment. So uh, it's kind of one of those things. Uh, housing markets can seem like they have you know split personalities sometimes um, because they are all connected. But the you know in terms of of the rental housing market is very connected to the for sale housing market. But there is certainly a a lot of steps between. A you know a, a uh, fifteen hundred dollar per month you know uh, one bedroom apartment and a four million dollar uh, single family home mm-hmm. and so you know so the so the issue right here the the question you always ask is is you know what are people's next best alternatives and so someone who is who is trying who is right now renting is is not is not feeling right now a lot of relief even though. The the you know single family homes have have gone down by by almost ten percent year over year. Well, you know the average is still the composite average is still around just under a million dollars. Uh, single family homes the average price is around one and a half million dollars. So if, if you're renting at fifteen hundred dollars per month, which is the average right now in uh, in Van- throughout Vancouver in in uh, for all unit types, 
you know, you're not you're not likely to be you know waiting for that 1.5 million dollar home to to you know reduce another 10 percent. Um, you know, that's that doesn't affect you quite yet. What will affect you though is that as people as as expectations are getting lowered, um, you'll get far fewer of those windfall bo- uh, boosts. Uh, that uh, that when someone you know sells a home they bought for a million and they sell it for four, um, you know, and then suddenly is that that those dollars are now at play in 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 townhomes and and smaller single family homes. Uh, that that will start to relieve that pressure, and so um, so there there will likely be for for at least for for a little bit a a continued disconnect between what's happening in the rental market and what's happening in the single family home market, but eventually that those those two markets will will begin to merge in terms of uh, in terms of their trends. Um, so it's not it's not unusual to see a decrease in in the price of for sale product while still experiencing an increase in rents. Um, but eventually we'll see those tied out. So, so that sounds to me like, um, stage three, we're kind of stage three, stage four, then if I, if I understand correctly, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be interesting, um, because the, uh, the, though it does happen rarely, it certainly does happen that people move, uh, there are seen that, that the markets move, uh, backward in the real estate cycle. Um, and that's when there's some sort of what would I call a non-market shock or an atypical shock to the to the to that market, and the uh, the, the foreign buy the in, the the introduction and the influence of foreign buyers earlier in this decade, and now the effect of unwinding that influence in this part of that the latter part of this decade um, are both shocks to that market. Um, you know, Vancouver continues to have a, a pretty healthy development market, um, but again, last couple of months we've we've started to see some changes in there. The uh, I, you know, if you think about the actual uh, construction of new of new homes, uh, MLA Realty projected that there was about 14,000 new condo units planned for 2000, 2019. Uh, but as a result of a combination of the uh, the the, requ- the the requirements from banks that they have a con- uh, about 60% pre-sold, uh, 60% of their product pre-sold before they begin construction, um, as well as um, some additional uh, costs. There's a $1,200 per unit development charge for transit now. Uh, that's that's rolling out later this year. Um, we're starting to see some headwinds to the to construction of new units. Um, and so MLA Realty, again, they, they said earlier this year is about 14,000 new condos. I think the latest that they were projecting was it was a uh, that that number was going to go down by about 5,000. Um, so it's a that's a substantial reduction in the the amount of new supply. Uh, again, w- we won't know until we see the numbers for 2019. Um, but I'd say there's still a, there's still a healthy um, uh, construction market. Uh, but as as the average home, you know, as the average price for condos decreases, and and uh, you know th- that will certainly give pause to developers uh, because of course they are buying the land and 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 doing their calculations based on one price, and they're seeing another. Um, to, to to get to put that in perspective for you, last year this time. A developer was looking at around seven hundred and four thousand dollars per apartment for you know condo that they're for sale apartments. Uh, now the average is about six hundred and fifty thousand. Um, so we've seen a, 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 a about a fifty thousand dollar drop in the um, uh, in in the, just the average condo price. And of course, you know that that makes it very hard for these projects to to pencil out. And so so we'll see that happen. But that that is a good thing, um, you know, in, in terms of, of of not oversupplying and flooding the market and causing it to crash. Uh, it's a bad thing for affordability 
because those are exactly the kind of units that we'd like to see more of in terms of, of providing affordable housing for, for, you know, for young people and, and small families. And Taylor, you've kind of circled around this point, but but it might be worth um, kind of hammering home here. If if you were looking to buy in Vancouver, what would you, in terms of timing the market here, what would you be looking for uh, to feel confident about pulling the trigger? Mm-hmm. Well, as 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 we've talked about before, and 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 you said it best. Um, you know, there is uh, it's important to distinguish between a strategy of timing the market. Uh, and simply just being in the market. So time in the market versus timing the market. Um, you, you, you said that, and, and that I think is, is, is very, very good advice. Uh, the idea is um, you, you never really know what's going to happen in, in, in markets. And so it's important that whatever your investment strategy is, it be a long-term strategy. And so um, you know that that's a big thing. I I, I don't think anyone, uh, I, I would certainly never have predicted that in June 2016, We'd see average home prices increasing by 32. Uh, percent That is a that is a bet that I would not have made. <laughs> right. A lot of people made the bet, and a lot of people made a lot of money making that bet. Um, and so, you know, that's that. But that being said, uh, you know, people that that waited a couple of years and said last year, you know, to, in 2018, they say, boy, prices are going up by nine and a half percent. Time to buy. Well, those people have seen a a nine and a half percent decrease in the value of their property. Um, right. So, you know, the, 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 the bottom line is uh, appreciation is a very fickle thing in, in real estate, and it is a slender read to, to lean on. What is a much stronger, uh, a stronger pillar to lean against is cash flow. At the end of the day, that is what generates value in real estate. Uh, the, you know, the, the reason things appreciate in value is because of, the, of temporary imbalances between supply and demand, but cash flow is persistent. And so if I'm looking at, at investing in real estate, um, I, you know, if we get appreciation, uh, terrific, but cash flow is what will eventually, uh, you know, lead to that appreciation first and foremost. And very importantly for, for investors, cash flow will allow you to survive a down market. Um, that is one of those things that as I mentioned, markets move in cycles. And so, you know, even if, uh, you, you you experience a you know phase four recession and and phase one recovery uh, where you have high vacancy and 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 depressed values. If you have cash flow that allows you to hold on to your properties, you will eventually emerge from that from that uh, that recession. Uh, the challenge that people experience is they don't have the cash flow to survive a downturn and end up having to sell at a discount in the middle of a recession, and that's where we see a lot of bankruptcies. So. Uh, in terms to, to answer your question, your question was, you know, what you know metrics do I look at? When do I look to move in? Um, what I look at is cash flow, and if there's decent cash flow from a from a from a project, uh, more or less, regardless of what's happening in the market at the moment, if I can buy a property that it, at a price that generates a decent amount of cash flow, cash flow that I can count on even during a recession, uh, that that is that that's my general uh, rule of thumb. And, and what about so? Because when we're just thinking or thinking out loud here about vacancy rates, and you know, rents have have come down here in Vancouver from from where they were. Um, are, are you building in buffers when you're looking at the cash flow uh, opportunities, or or how do you? Yep. Yeah. What what type of uh, measures do you take? I guess sort of to be conservative and to make sure that you're you're going to weather the storm. 
Sure. Yeah. What, what a lot of people will do is, is, and I've seen investors do this. They go to the op, they, they, they go the opposite end and they say, I'm going to, I want to make sure that I can, I can, you know, I can sustain a 50% vacancy and a, and a, you know, 30% decrease in rents. Um, and I'm only going to do a deal if it will still work with those parameters. Um, and, and while that is a very, you know, safe approach, it also all but guarantees you'll never buy anything uh, right. because there are very few there are very few properties that will ever cash flow at that point. Um, and so you may be very safe, but you're also going to be uh, all in cash. Um, so the uh, you know what I look to in, in any market is is I look at the range and and there's very good data in, in Vancouver has very good data, but in most cities, even outside of Vancouver, uh, there's very good data on long term uh, vacancy rates. And so what I would just basically say is. Uh, first and foremost, what's the average? Um, I would try to incorporate that in my in my uh, cash flow forecast and just say, you know, I I, I, can't, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, there's no way of knowing. But you know, over the last 20 years, we've seen this level of vacancy rate, so it it's likely we'll see something similar. If you want to be a little bit safer, what you could do is you could look at the range of vacancy rates and say, well, how bad did it get uh, in 2008? Uh, in the in the in the Great Recession, 2009, 2010, how bad did the vacancy rate get in my submarket? And and I could use that as kind of the lower end. And uh, what that would mean to me is uh, I won't be eating a whole lot at that point, but I'll be able to survive. Right. And so um, so I and so I look at that. It, just thinking about how how you go about investing in real estate. And I know you're, you're big into, into multifamily, which here is, as we, we generally, I think our listeners are generally kind of mom and pop investors looking to acquire, you know, a couple doors, but not necessarily, um, at least not in Vancouver, anything, anything more than that. Um, cash flow is important, obviously, but how do you, and, and it sounds like you're looking at kind of say, 20-year averages uh, and, and a lot of historic data is being relied on when, in your decision-making process. But it does seem, and maybe more so in Vancouver than, than in other places, like the culture's changed quite dramatically. People don't seem to really be keen on single-family homes the way they once did. Or, or say in the 70s, you might be thinking about, uh, you know, of course, everybody wants to live in the suburbs where now urban centers uh, are much more attractive. Like, how do you factor in kind of a changing culture or different cultures? Uh, or is that part of your decision-making process when you're, when you're buying real estate? No, oh, certainly. The, you know, and there's no question that more and more people are choosing rentals. And, uh, and that, that's, that's a, that is also a global phenomenon. Um, it is the, 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 you know, the million-dollar question, of course, is what's going on with millennials, uh, because that is, uh, that for, for now, it's still the largest generation that ever was. Uh, that will change at some point soon. But the, um, uh, so the question is, you know, what are millennials doing? Right. Um, in the United States, there's a, and, and, and so obviously, since a lot of millennials move from the United States to Canada, uh, there's, there's, there's something to be said here. But the um, uh, student debt is a huge problem for millennials. Um, that's something that anyone who is, who, is, who is heading south to invest needs to be aware that the population of millennials in the United States has a, has a staggering amount of student debt. And that student debt makes buying a single family home or even a condo uh, very, very difficult. And so we have a lot of, of millennial renters. Uh, many of them are renting by choice. Many of them are not renting by choice. They, they don't, they, that is their only choice available to them. 
Um, and so we're, so we're seeing that, um, we're also seeing millennials are putting off marriage they're putting off having kids. And that tends to, uh, to, again, it makes, uh, renting uh, a much, much better choice uh, in most, for most cases. Uh, the idea basically being that if you're not having to, to pay for, for those, you know, for, for raising a family, it's much easier for you to be downtown where you can be closer to a, to a, a higher paying job. And you have access to all these amenities and, and, uh, and I mean amenities within your home as well as amenities uh, right outside your front door. And so we are seeing that there's a, there's kind of a trend towards, uh, towards rentals. Um, and that's something that is that, that we're, you know, looking at, at cities in the Vancouver metropolitan area are, are also embracing that. Uh, I know Burnaby is looking at doing a requirement of, of, of I believe it's 20% of all new condo buildings will have a rental component. Right. Um, and I think that, that's reflective of the the evolution of of uh, um, of, of housing demand um, and the need for r- affordable rental housing in the Vancouver metro area. So um, so we'll we'll evaluate that trend. Uh, the big question, of course, is what happens when millennials uh, decide to you know <laughs> to stop eating their avocado toast and all that. Um, actually, by the way, I love avocado toast. Yeah, so give me, it a try if you too. haven't had it. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say <laughs> anyway, I, I heard uh, about the avocado toast through real estate, and now it's like a staple. <laughs> It's a state. It's great. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, but that, I don't know. I don't know why everyone thinks millennials do that, but in case, uh, but it is delicious. Um, but when they say, you know what, we're going to put down our toast and we're going to, and we're going to start a family. Uh, the question is, you know, when does that happen and, and where does that happen? That'll be something that, that again, remains to be seen. Uh, but we are start starting to continue to see rentals. Um, you know, a, a lot of the, there, there was a mentality in particularly starting in the, in the forties, fifties and sixties, uh, again, a worldwide mentality, which was, you know, home ownership is, is, you know, should be the goal. And what a lot of millennials are kind of experiencing is whether by choice or, or by, or not, they're renting and they're finding out, you know what, uh, there is a lot of advantages to renting, uh, renting, renting offers the advantage to, to live in the neighborhood that you want for as long as you want to live there. And when you, and you want to move, you can move to a different neighborhood altogether. Um, so there, there's a, there's a large built in demand for rentals. Um, and so I certainly, you know, I, I don't, I don't see a, a, a crash in the rental market um, from a, from a demographic standpoint coming anytime soon. Uh, but again, you know, who, who knows? Maybe switching gears a, a little bit here, Teo, uh, and moving towards markets that that you know more intimately. I'm thinking kind of Colorado and, and maybe the Southwest United States, as it sounds like. Um, what markets are you are you really excited about right now and and where do you think uh in terms of the the market cycle we spoke about uh where where is the u.s uh or those markets that you're excited about kind of in 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 that that's the which stage i guess sure well in in the apartment world which is where i spend most of my time uh in the united states we're we're certainly in the uh, at e, e, towards the end of uh, uh phase two the expansion phase or, or the, the beginning of phase three hyper supply. Most cities are in that, in that range. So we're kind of, we're seeing kind of the top of the market. And, and again, in the United States, which again, so it's very different from, from what we're seeing in Vancouver because of the, the demand issue. Uh, in the U.S., uh, we're seeing a, a more typical um, uh, display of the real estate cycle. And that is to say demand has been, can, has been more or less constant and constant in rising. And what's turning the cycle is not any change in demand, but rather the change in supply. 
Uh, the you know I, I like to tell people that in the city of Denver, which of course is where I'm most familiar, uh, in in 2010, Denver, the entire metropolitan area uh, of of Denver, had uh, we built roughly 400 apartment units. Uh, Denver now builds that same quantity every 11 days, and so you know where there's a just wow. you know there's just a <laughs> huge staggering. change. Yeah, there's a yeah it's a staggering change in the volume of new construction. And that new construction, at least in, in the city of Denver, has resulted in downward pressure on rents. Uh, people are stunned to hear that rents are actually decreasing in Denver. Um, and uh, over the last nine months, they've actually fallen. And that's something that's very interesting because the uh, it's not what you, what you expect to see, uh, but it is the inexorable result of a surplus and an abundance of supply that's being added. And, and so... Uh, so it's interesting to see that, and and so Denver certainly is much further along. Denver's probably uh, in the middle to the end of the hypersupply phase. Um, you know what what continues to surprise everyone watching the Denver market is the is that people continue to move here, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's you know that that is those we we build lots and lots of units, and more and more people fill them up. So um, so I you know I I look at that, but the question of course is you know why Denver and and what what is it that I could look at other markets what you know statistics should I be looking at or indicators for the health and the the by far the most important overall um you know, forward indicator is employment employment growth so I look to cities that have uh, strong employment growth uh because you know jobs are what attract people to a city jobs are what allow people to to pay rent and to and to buy single family homes um, so, so job growth is is what I look at, and uh, and a lot of uh, in, in a lot of urban centers, we're continuing to see a lot of strong job growth. So, uh, so I of course I'm excited about Denver. Uh, made a trip to Austin recently, uh, and Austin continues to have that, that kind of a, a very similar vibe uh, as uh, as as Denver does. Um, you know, a lot of people are 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 getting worried about California, um, but you know, California continues to have. Uh, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people turning 18, a lot of people needing rental housing. Um, and uh, and again, uh, just some other markets, of course, along the uh, the Pacific Northwest, uh, Seattle and Portland, you know, they, they continue to struggle with affordability. And so a lot of people are, are you know, very worried about those markets. Um, but the bottom line is the reason there's an affordability issue is because those are very desirable markets to live in and they've got good jobs and lots of people want to live there. So, um, so I, I look to job growth. Um, I, I worry about the uh, the challenges of, of how cities will address affordable housing issues. Uh, it is one of the most important issues that in in the U.S. and in major cities of, of addressing affordable housing. Um, some cities are, are pursuing policies which are very helpful. Uh, others not so much. Uh, it is uh, an ongoing debate in the United States and, and in fact, around the world. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Just thinking about, and I think we touched on this last time we spoke, but it's maybe especially uh, considering where we are in the market here in Vancouver. What would you say to to, to folks who, you know, um, are well aware of of the the market cycle, but you know there there is an uh, a desire, and and I think a, it's it's a smart move to to kind of keep the money moving, right? Like. Like if you're seeing what you're seeing in Denver, are you just shifting to other markets or, or what's your approach or take on that? You know, uh, one of the things is, um, 
first and foremost, a lot of people undertake a lot of different um, investment styles. And so I, I certainly can't, I, I'll, I'll give you my opinion, uh, but I will also guarantee you that after we, after we end this interview, I'm going to get a bunch of emails saying, Teo, you're dead wrong. Um, and so that, that's okay because that's, you know, that markets are, 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 are a discussion. And um, um, so what I would say is, is that what, what all investors need to be focusing on is uh, really two main things. One, of course, cash flow. That's if, if you look at nothing else, just make sure that that's you do that first. Uh, second, as another way of of filtering your um, your investments, is looking at risk adjusted return, and and that's something that a lot of people overlook. Risk adjusted return basically means how much what, what what kind of returns are you getting based on the risk that you're taking. And so uh, the number one way to to reduce risk is to understand the product that you're investing in and the market in which you're investing. That is the number one to, to reduce your risk because you understand the risks that you're taking. You understand the the, the forces that are at work at that market, and and so therefore you're you're less likely to you know make a mistake by overpaying for a property. And, uh, and and suddenly, you know, reaping the the, uh, the 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 not so pleasant rewards of that. So when it comes to investing, I, I like to invest in areas that I'm very very familiar with. Uh, it doesn't mean that I mean there there are there are many other markets outside of Denver that have that have people come to me and they tell me what great rates of returns they're getting, and and those may be achieving those returns. The problem is is that when I go to invest in a new market, if I'm not very confident that I understand what's happening in that market. I may achieve good returns, but I'm taking a lot of risk to achieve those. And so the number one thing I would just say is in terms of looking at markets is uh, first and foremost, look to the markets that you are most familiar with. Even if the returns aren't as high as some other markets you may have heard about, the risk-adjusted returns are likely to be higher. That is to say, you're, you're, like, you're less likely to take a risk, which will result in a, in a bad outcome. Uh, Warren Buffett's number one rule of investment is don't lose money. Uh, you probably know his number two rule is refer to rule number one. And so, so that, that is, if that is what, how Warren Buffett uh, undertakes his investment, I, I don't think I can make any, any further or, or better comment than that. So, um, so I look at, you know, in every real estate market, there's always good deals out there. The better that you are uh, tuned into your market, the more likely it is that you'll see those deals and be able to, uh, to, to, to capitalize on those. Um, the, the, the corollary is also true. The less familiar you are with a different market, the, 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 the less likely you'll get the good deals and the more likely you'll end up buying deals that everyone who is tuned into that market have passed on. And so, um, so I would say is, is that, you know, looking to other markets is always a, is there's, that's a good idea. Uh, it's a good exercise, but I would only invest in, in properties where I feel like I really understand the market dynamics and therefore my my risk adjusted return is likely to be higher. Sound sound advice uh for sure. Um maybe just as a final question and uh you know everybody loves to ask the crystal ball type questions uh here Teo and and just from your your perch in Colorado will Vancouver be more expensive or less expensive in 10 years? That is an excellent question. Uh, Ten years is a long time to, to go out there. Um, 
but you know, again, if, if with all the caveats of if you you know if you ever listen to anyone who's predicting the future, understand that uh, <laughs> that is the future is 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 relatively unknown. And markets uh, do are if there's one thing markets are good at, it's embarrassing people who make predictions. Um, so with that said, let me start with those predictions. Um, you know what what there there's a there's a global force at work, which is that that more and more people are moving to urban centers. Um, and if you if you really want to 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 look into that, there's a there's an economist named Edward Glazer. Uh, so he's a he's a, a Harvard uh, professor and economist. Um, his his work uh, most recently has been a, a book called The Triumph of the City. Right. And and the and and in his work, which I I, I agree with, um, his basically his opinion is you know cities are kind of the ultimate economic engine, and by bringing people together in close proximity. We're able to create these these synergies and and just all sorts of health reasons and climate reasons, but just just from a from an economic reason um, that cities are 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 wealth producers. And so consequently, you know, all things being equal, we typically see uh, cities will continue to be will continue to attract people and companies and that economic activity that creates value in real estate. And so, you know, from that standpoint, I, there's, there's not a, uh, there's, I, I don't have long-term concerns about, about Vancouver. Um, I, my hope is that, that when I come back and, and chat with you in, a, in another year or two, when we start to see we hopefully we'll have seen this, this foreign in uh, the foreign owner situation worked out. Um, and then what you'll see is, is Mar- uh, Vancouver uh, return to a much more normal, uh, perhaps predictable Real estate market. Uh, in between now and then, uh, we, we're certainly going to keep a very, very careful eye on what's happening with uh, the inventory in Vancouver and uh, and how that inventory is is uh, uh, accumulating or not, depending on what's happening with buyers. Great answer. And you know what? Usually we have a a, a segment called the Live Wire, which is five quick questions about Vancouver. Um, I, I know you visited Vancouver before, and I think we we might have uh, asked you these questions last time. But there's two that are kind of unrelated to Vancouver, but I really would like uh, your take on them because I think they have the potential to be quite interesting. Do you have time for kind of unrelated sure. to real estate? I, I, I will do. I will do my absolute best. Okay, so so it's questions four and five. So so the fourth question we've been asking people is if you could. Give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice uh, today. What would that piece of advice be? Uh, my piece of advice for an 18-year-old self is uh, find a mentor and and work your heart out for them. Uh, that absolutely is the case. Uh, the uh, you know a lot of a lot of 18-year-olds, myself included, are excited about going out and and you know taking the world by storm, and that's pretty cool. Um, but but finding a good mentor and and absolutely working your heart out for them is going to return huge dividends uh, because you will learn so much from from finding a master of your craft, the craft that you want to be in. Um, find a master of your craft and uh, and and work your heart out for them. You'll learn far more in in you know a year or two or or you know five doing that than any other practice that that I can think of. That that's. Fantastic advice. And if if I was guessing, just based on your your own trajectory, it sounds like you cut your teeth in the in the working for a firm uh, out east, and and then went out on your own. Is that right? That's exactly right. I, I'm I'm very proud. I had a wonderful mentor by the name of Brian Cunat, um, who is a real estate uh, entrepreneur 
um, par excellence. I mean, he he is a a master at his craft. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm pleased to say I still uh, chat with him on a, on a regular basis. I actually went out and visited him um, uh, last month, and uh, and it's uh, this is a guy that was a, that was built his his real estate uh, uh, his real estate empire in, in Illinois. Um, you know, from on, you know, from from nothing. Uh, he and his brother, and and a, a tremendous group of uh, of people that work together uh, for for his company have uh, have done that. Uh, and and he's a master of his craft. And I went out and, and worked my heart out for him. And uh, as I said, I but uh, graduated from from Harvard College, but uh, immediately went to work for him. And uh, and uh, and I, I I'm not sure which one I learned more from, uh, but I certainly, in terms of what I do on a daily basis, um, having worked my heart out for him for uh, for a couple of years. Um, it, it propelled me forward in, in ways that that on a on a seemingly daily basis I, I begin to appreciate more and more on that. So um, that was that is certainly what I did, and I um, I you know I, I would certainly reaffirm that to my 18 year old self to say that is uh, that is something that that pays off huge dividends. Um, again, not to belabor the point, a lot of people are tempted to go for the you know the high paying jobs and the kind of the glamour. Um, McHenry, Illinois, which is where where the where Brian Kuna is from, is uh, is is a town of about twenty five thousand people. Uh, it is it could not be less you know less uh, or more dissimilar from New York City or Manhattan. Um, but what I learned from there was the was this this craft of real estate investment, and I learned it from a master of the craft. And so I think that that's something that everyone should consider doing and uh, continue to uh, to look for opportunities uh, to find a mentor and, and work their heart out for them. Fantastic advice. And, and the last question for you, Teo, is what is something you have purchased in the last six months or year for under $500 that's had a very positive impact on your life? Oh, sure. Uh, they, without, without question, the one that is a, I, I purchased an app on my phone uh, that is a timer app. There are a lot of them out there. Um, but it's a, and so I, I don't want to, well, you guys can look up different ones that you can get. Um, the, the one that I, I, I happened to purchase was called Toggle, T-O-G-G-L. Um, there are many other great ones out there that I've heard about. So it's not a product endorsement, but, uh, but I purchased that app. And uh, what it has allowed me to do is, is quickly, easily uh, track what I'm spending my time on. Uh, because, and this goes back to my, to my mentor, Brian Cunett, uh, time is the one resource that you can never replenish. And, and it is something that you have to be, everyone has to be constantly thinking about how they're spending their time and making sure it doesn't escape. Uh, the best way to prevent that, that I've certainly have found is, is to actually actively measure your time and find out what you're spending your time on on a daily basis. Um, I know I was surprised when I started getting these weekly reports as to what I had in my head kind of thought I was spending my time on. And then according to the actual data, what I was really spending my time on, um, that awareness of, of time, how valuable that is to each individual person in terms of what they're doing. Uh, that awareness, I think, is, is in, in a way priceless because, as I said, it's, it's, the, one, it's the one commodity that, that we all have an equal share of, uh, but which we can never get back once it's spent. Um, so uh, for under $500, best thing I bought was a, uh, was a, was a, a, a timer app on my phone so I can uh, better use my time on a daily basis. And, and does that, uh, so if I understand correctly, it's, are you punching in when you change activities or how, how does that uh, yes. work? Uh, so you, you, and diff- there's different ones out there. Uh, the one I happen to use um, will actually, um, will it'll, you install it on your, on your desktop as well. So it's, it's, it's connected to your computer since a lot of what I do and like, like you and many other people um, is on my computer. So it'll, it'll notice what you're working on 
and it'll kind of say, hey, were you really working on, you know, did you, you, you said you were working on your emails, but I see you were uh, in Microsoft <laughs> Excel working on a spreadsheet. Uh, maybe were you working on this other project instead? Um, so, so they're getting very sophisticated. Uh, you also can pre-populate. So for those of you, I've, I tried the calorie counters, and I, that was very difficult for me at one point because, you know, it's, it's, it became cumbersome and became too difficult. Uh, most of these timing apps will allow you to, uh, to pre-populate and say, you know, these are the kind of the six or seven things I'm likely to work on on a given day. And so I can very quickly select those and say, you know, right now I'm working on planning. Uh, that's my, my first thing when I get in the office every day is I sit down and, and, and create a plan for the day. Um, and, uh, and so I've got, you know, some planning time. Then I switch to email time. Obviously, I, I lecture through uh, for Harvard Extension School. So I, I note how much time I'm spending working on my lecture or presenting my lecture and, and, uh, and how much time I'm spending, you know, walking the dog. Uh, it's a, you know, then that's, that's a very valuable re- uh, experience, by the way. Right, uh, right. So, you know, my, my experience, so, you know, get, getting, getting some, some time and recreation time is important. Um, but time is something we can never get back. It is absolutely the most important resource in terms of deploying it effectively. And if you can identify and, you know, even if there's an hour of time a day, that you're, you know, that someone, you know, finds out that they're, uh, that they're, they're wasting. Um, and that, that, that is certainly something that can happen. Uh, you know, an hour a day, that that's, that's 260 work hours a week or excuse me, a, a year. Um, that's like six weeks worth of work. Right. So if you can, if you can regain that, um, you're, you're, you're adding basically another six weeks onto your, onto your, your work year. And, uh, and, you know, with, with, with effort, uh, you can certainly hopefully do a lot with that. Fantastic. Well, this has been an incredible conversation once again, Teo, and I'm sure it's going to go down uh, like like your last uh, episode as as a fan favorite. How can people find out more about what you're doing? Uh, And I know you're publishing at least uh, the stuff we've come across is online. Uh, Is there a place where we can send listeners? Oh, sure, absolutely. The well, where where I teach uh, my real estate courses is through the Harvard Extension School. Um, so people can just go to extension.harvard.edu. Uh, what's really cool about those courses is they are open enrollment. So anyone can take those courses. Uh, Harvard has a real estate investment program. Uh, there's a certificate that you can get. Uh, I, I teach three out of the four courses that are connected with that. Um, and so those are, you know, anyone, you can take one course, uh, you can take all, uh, you can take four and, uh, and get a real estate investment certificate. Uh, or Harvard Extension School also offers a, a degree program, both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree program. Um, the uh, most of the classes, they're all the classes I teach are online, so you, anyone can take them. Uh, they are generally live, so you'll, I can, you know, you'll people can ask questions and and, uh, and join the conversation. Uh, but they're designed also for people who are busy and working, uh, so it's something that you can do uh, even if you can't join the live lecture. You can catch up afterwards and uh, and and work with me and the the teaching staff. So uh, it's a lot of fun. We 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 really enjoy it. Um, real estate, as as I mentioned, it, it's such a it's such a an entrepreneurial uh, industry, and it's one that that anyone who wants to uh, to get involved in it is is able to do. And there's always something interesting to learn and observe, uh, it, whether whether you're in Vancouver or or anywhere anywhere else in the world. So. Uh, Harvard Extension School is is where where most people can find me, and uh, and otherwise uh, you'll find me checking out different metro areas, and and uh, hopefully not too long from now I'll be back up in in Vancouver to see what's going on. Hey, and we'll 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 buy you a beer when you're here. So, 
Uh, Excellent. Done. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks again for your time, Teo. That was, that was a great conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Teo Nikolai, entrepreneur and all-around fascinating guest. Great interview. I'm really glad. Uh, glad I listened to it. a lot of takeaways is uh, what I'm sure I'm going to say when I hear this episode when it comes out tomorrow. <laughs> you, know, you know what I like about this one, Pete? Teo is, is a student of the market, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, he did his homework here, he, and it's interesting to get an outside observer's perspective on Vancouver, where we're at. I mean, both when we were on fire, when we talked to him the first time, which was maybe early 2017, I think. Uh, and he had a lot to say about the market then and where we were headed. And then now when the market's totally different dynamics and he comes back and uh, does not disappoint. You know what? Uh, and all joking aside, I am quite interested to listen to this one just to get the contrast of both markets. And I mean, the guys from Harvard ever heard of it. <laughs> it's very nice to hear that the guest host wants to listen to the podcast feed. Thank you. First time for everything, guys. Okay, so what else do we got this week, Pete? Let's draw that book, Matt. Let's draw that book. Okay, thank you so much again for everybody who's went on to Google and reviewed the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. We have a signed copy of Vancouverism, Larry Beasley's book, going out today to, drumroll secret, Huh, I guess you can call that a drumroll. Really, uh... They phoned it in there. Well, it is. It's it's summertime, I guess. It's funny. You ask him to do a drum roll. He, he, he does in a God of David or nothing. I mean, there's no in between. There is a guy. middle ground, man. There's a middle <laughs> ground. It's called gray. <laughs> okay, so the winner this week is Owen Brady. So Owen says consistently great guests, also fun, casual interview style, and good sound quality make it a pleasure to listen to. Great review, Owen. Hey, yeah, that, that's fantastic. Thanks so much, Owen. And uh, yeah, get in touch. And we got a book for you here. What else do we got this week, Pete? We got VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. That's right. It's your one-stop shop for everything Vancouver real estate. Uh, okay, so head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com where you're going to see an updated news feed. We got the live, live wire. wire. Holy. Jeez, it's like you've done this before. It's not the, my first time. The live wire where you get tips and tricks the deal of the month we're yep. sending out assignments screaming deals on assignments right now you get updates on episodes it's everything you need there's no reason why you shouldn't be on the live wire we also have private client services that's right private client services if you're not using private client services oh, you are brutal. it's like you're reading it from a page we, pete if you, you're not using private client services you're, you're st- standing on the sidelines while the rest no, of us no, are no, power no. walking by <laughs> pete if you are not using private client services, you're standing still with the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices. You get days on market. I've done this before, Pete. This is watch and learn. You get sold <laughs> prices. You get days on market. You basically get realtor-level information. If you're looking for Vancouver real estate and you're not using private client services, Pete, you're doing it wrong. So get in touch with me at any time to discuss this or anything else. You can also sign up, of course, at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com or call me, 778 
847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Wow, I'm, I'm just in awe here. This is, okay, okay what's, what's my phone number? Okay, uh, you can reach me at 604-782-7484 or, of course, at peter at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Secret is actually out on the streets. With Adam off here, he's just sprinting from, from appointment to appointment. I don't even know if he's going to have time to edit this thing this week. But uh, hopefully everybody else is enjoying the sun, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Take care. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.